everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feely. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. Yeah, we're going to do a part two Q&A episode today. So we did one of these a few weeks ago. If you haven't checked it out yet, go back and have a look. There were a few different questions we got to there. And today we're going to get to a few more of your questions that you guys asked on Instagram. So the first question, let's just jump straight into it, Dave. The first question we're going to cover, this one's a little bit more technical, and then we're going to do a couple more like, kind of like more case scenarios. So bear with us if this one feels a little bit in depth, but hopefully it is interesting. Um, We've got a question about what is molecular mimicry now some of you guys may not have even heard of this before so we're going to cover what that is and then we're going to cover a little bit of the science behind it so bear with us there's a little bit here and then we are going to get a little bit more personal after this but to begin with dave molecular mimicry what is that even referring to yeah so probably the best way i could break this down because there are a lot of technicalities to this uh is to give examples yep so with molecular mimicry it's, I think it's important for people to understand that like a lot of autoimmune diseases have been heavily linked to molecular mimicry. And with molecular mimicry, you know, one of the leading mechanisms that actually uh, creates issues around this would be infectious. And so what I'm talking about here is like bacterial and even like chemical agents and the impact that they're obviously having on the immune system. Okay. And obviously that would be the relationship with something like autoimmune disease. Okay. So now to try and like, you know, like really analyze what it is, like what's going on here. Okay. So basically you get like, uh, like foreign antigens. Now for people who don't know what I'm talking about, when I say like a foreign antigen, I'm just talking about like foreign material and the foreign antigen has a very similar structure to host antigens. Okay. So when I'm saying like the host antigen, I'm obviously talking about like us, we're the host. Now to unravel this maybe a little bit more is that you can get like foreign and self peptides okay and so they have very similarities so similarities in their structure and they favor like an activation of autoreactive t cells and b cells caused by like foreign antigens i know there's a lot of like technicalities here okay <laughs> and like obviously we, we we're going to try and unravel this a little bit more yeah. okay but maybe like the best best way to try and un- unravel this a little bit more is just give a bit of an example okay so okay. what i'm really talking about is like the, the relationship here with like, like bacteria. Okay. So bacteria is highly adaptable and it's really, really important for, for people to understand. Okay. And what, what's their primary focus? Survival. Okay. And a lot of the time what they're doing is they're developing ways to evade the, the host immune system. So, and when it comes to something like uh, molecular mimicry, okay, essentially what the, the bacteria can do is that they can like imitate proteins okay so they can imitate proteins like cell proteins from the host once again we, we are the host okay and the reason they'll do that is to evade the human pathways so it's yeah. it's basically like these bacteria i don't know if i've if i've uh, explained like i've explained it the best the best way i can yeah and i think we'll, we'll dive into it a bit more but basically in, in a nutshell what's happening is this but it's not just bacteria but but if we focus on bacteria it's basically camouflaging itself 
to look like your own, like proteins made by your own body. Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah, to, to evade the human pathways. Okay. And once again, this is a survival mechanism. And like this obviously becomes a, a huge problem when you do have severe bacterial overgrowth. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not about us like going, oh, okay, it's this particular bacteria strain. Okay. And then we're just trying to eradicate that bacteria strain. Okay. Like obviously even like pathogenic strains of things like negative gram bacteria in the right ratios, we say this all the time, do serve a purpose. They have a symbiotic relationship with the beneficial flora. Okay. But obviously it becomes a problem when you have like an overgrowth of the pathogenic strains of negative gram bacteria in this instance. Okay. Like, yep. and so Maybe just like giving people an example. Yeah, let's go okay. into an example. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so particular bacteria strains. Okay. So, uh, one is like Klebsiella pneumonia. So, there's all the like Klebsiella is the broad group, but this is negative gram bacteria. And one of these uh, particular strains is Klebsiella pneumonia. Okay. Uh, and also, other negative gram bacteria strains have been associated with this as well. I can't remember like all the negative gram bacteria strains that are linked to this, but even things like Shigella, it's a pathogenic uh, bacteria as well. So, you know, there's, I think chlamydia as well has actually been linked to this. Yeah. Okay. And so the, the actual bacteria, okay, has been shown to have a six consecutive amino acid sequence. And this has been uh, shown to be similar to those who are more susceptible to autoimmune conditions like ankylosis spondylitis. So it obviously really targets like the vertebrae and the spine and, and the intervertebral disc basically. Okay. And so if we look at it from a mimicking perspective, what's really happening here is that the human antigen that is getting mimicked is called the HLA B27. Okay, so and, and so this is a protein on the surface of white blood cells. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's important for people to understand that you can have proteins on the surface of bacteria. For example, like bifidobacterium, which obviously we do talk about. If you look at like bifidobacterium longum as an example, there's a protein, the FN3 protein, that is actually located on the surface of the bacteria. So you do have actually have proteins that are located on the surface of the bacteria. And so th- this, is, this is where this uh, mimicking, okay, so this molecular mim- mimicry is actually taking place. And when this is taking place, this is obviously is what's linked to creating issues around like ankylosing spondylitis and issues around the spine. So essentially what's happening is there's like pattern recognition going on. So your body or your immune system, it's looking at this, these amino acids, which is basically a protein in essence. And so it's seeing this, this pattern of amino acids with this bacteria and it's saying that's the target. Anywhere I see that, that sequence of amino acids now going to attack it. And so what the bacteria has done is gone, well, I know what's going to happen here. So I'm actually going to mimic, I'm going to copy amino acids that it's actually found in your own body. And so now you're going to confuse me for that. And so we start attacking the bacteria, but we also mount this immune attack, defense, whatever, against our own tissue elsewhere as well. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so obviously the real issue here is you really need to deal with the negative gram bacteria or the bacterial overgrowth. I mean, that's obviously how you're going to really solve this problem. Okay. And also you need to understand why did you get the bacterial issues in the first place, which maybe is compromisation of the terrain and stuff that we do talk about on a regular occurrence. I guess another, like, like, do I bring up a, just another example? Just a quick well, example? I think we should, because what, so you've just given an example there of Klebsiella and ankylosing spondylitis, but that's just one example. And so different bacteria, different compounds will mimic different parts of the body, won't they? So it's not always going to have the same outcome. 
Yeah. And so like one that we have spoken about before, so we don't necessarily need to get, you know, too much into the weeds here. Okay. But uh, another example would be something like thyroid mimicry. So if we look at the gliden molecule, and once again, this is obviously where a lot of the issues do lie with gluten. You've got the protein molecules within that. You've got gluten, you've got gliden. So if we're looking at it, okay, with the gliden molecule, the human antigen that is getting mimicked here is transglutaminase. Okay, and if we look at that, what this could lead to, it'd be something like celiac disease, which is basically just like atrophy of the villi, villi atrophy, cryptopoplasia, whatever you want to call it. And so we have talked about this when we've talked about the thyroid in, in previous podcasts. And the, the, the glider molecule, okay, has a similar molecular structure. And once again, the molecular mimicry, okay, molecular structure to thyroid hormone. And essentially what's going to happen is that the immune system is going to tag for for destruction so you get a raise in like antibodies and the immune system ends up attacking the thyroid tissue and so in this instance okay the person can get a raise in things like anti-glidin antibodies okay and so a raise in like things like igg it's an immunoglobulin iga another immunoglobulin okay so a raise a raise in these immunoglobulins or these antibodies and also that the the person might have more th1 activity or more th1 helper cells so they basically have more pro-inflammatory activity and they might have a suppression in th2 helper cells or a suppression in th2 activity which basically means like anti-inflammatory activity which basically means that they're just left with more pro-inflammatory activity and obviously this could lead to things like hypothyroidism like Hashimoto's and like autoimmune conditions so this would be just like a another example so in that context what you're saying is the consumption of gluten or gladin which is in gluten that is going to lead the body to potentially attack its own thyroid proteins and then lead to, to autoimmunity now and then that- one, one one thing just to mention which i know we you know we, we say it all the time but obviously when you've got the hyperpermeability and you've got the structural damage within the gut lining okay that is definitely going to be exacerbated a lot more especially if you are consuming high amounts of gluten or gliden for sure yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so again, like you said, there's these there's the exposure component there, and so for this is why for me, like when I've got clients who've got elevated thyroid antibodies, have Hashimoto's or Graves' disease, a non-negotiable for me is cutting out gluten. Um, and obviously, this isn't going to like this doesn't happen for 100 percent of people, does it? But it is a significant. I mean, I don't I haven't seen data on this. Have you seen data on on kind of what percentage this would be a contributing factor for? Look, it's hard to get direct data on it, yeah. to be honest. Okay, so that's why I, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even like to attempt to quote yeah. things. Okay, because it's it is hard to get um, direct data on it. But I've certainly seen anecdotally with clients. Uh, this one person who sticks out really sharply in my mind, where he had Graves' disease, um, and we'd been tracking his anti, or well, he'd been tracking his antibodies really consistently. Like every month, he was getting blood tests done and, and getting his antibodies tested, and they're always maxed out. And then, you know, we started working together and we cut a gluten. That was one of the first changes we made. And it was, it was either his next test or the following one, I forget, but it was with him in probably six weeks, his antibodies had about halved, effectively just from cutting out gluten. Like you could literally point to it on a timeline and say, that's where I cut out gluten. And that was the change in antibodies. Now, obviously people are going to look at that. I know, well, I say obviously, but in the medical world, people will say, well, antibodies, you know, probably they could go down because the damage has occurred and whatever else, or, you know, they, they don't put too much stock in antibodies, but I would say that that's pretty significant. If we consistently see an intervention like that correlate with those changes, I think that's pretty important to note. 
Yeah. And like, like a lot of the, like a lot of the time, and we, we do talk about this, like we're not saying that we would just eradicate it, you know, altogether with, with everyone. Okay. Because yeah. like, you know, you know, certain forms of like, you know, triticum durum wheat, we talk about this, like maybe a good quality, like sourdough or, a good quality rye bread where the gliding concentration is a little bit lower. Okay. But one thing I want to mention on that, okay. Like obviously if you've got the issues around the hyperpermeability, yeah. okay. The loosening and the widening of the intracellular tight junctions, even these ones that I'm talking about here, even though it's a lower gliding concentration is, is still going to create some, some issues. Yeah. Yeah. I so, think it's one of those foods where people should work towards being able to include like those good quality sources in their diet. But I think yeah until they've done that baseline work, it probably doesn't have much of a place. Yeah, correct. I mean, obviously you want to fix the damage. That's what you want to do first. And once again, for certain people that might take a while. Yeah. Okay. And then obviously once you finish that, you've, you've fixed that damage. Okay. Then you can look at like introducing some of these lower gliding concentration alternatives. Now, do you want to give any other examples of where molecular mimicry may occur? Yeah. So I look once again, I don't want to sound like it's like, you know, all bad. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So like a, another example uh, would just be something like caffeine. Okay. So what, I, what, and what I'm going to talk about here, I'm not having a go at caffeine. I want to make that clear. Like I'm not anti-caffeine. Okay. I understand that there's definitely uh, benefits here. I can't want anti-coffee, but I'm just talking about the molecular mimic side of things. Okay. Yeah. Because that does take place with caffeine. So how caffeine works is it essentially blocks and fills adenosine receptors. And so what I'm talking about here is the, the reaction that is actually taking place within the brain. So if you actually look at adenosine, okay, so this is a neurochemical. And as the brain sort of like, what's the best way to explain this? Okay, as the brain sort of like fires throughout the day, you actually will produce higher amounts of adenosine from the neurons. And actually throughout the day, that just makes you more tired. And people are going to go, well, that doesn't sound like a good thing. It is a good thing because that obviously helping with your sleep wake cycle okay so more adenosine accumulates and obviously that plugs the adenosine receptors and then you just start to feel more tired throughout the day and this is obviously what's helping with that sleep wake cycle okay so how caffeine works caffeine is actually like an antagonist for a1 adenosine receptors okay so essentially what it does it has a it has a very similar size and structure to the adenosine okay and essentially it will plug the receptor but it won't create the reaction and so this is um, and I'm, I'm not saying once again i'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing but also how it you know how caffeine actually makes you more like stimulated is adenosine actually does control other neurotransmitters so it actually does control things like dopamine glutamate so because the adenosine is not really keeping these neurotransmitters in check you would just have i'm not i'm not, I'm not having to go with dopamine and glutamate here okay but Basically, dopamine and, and glutamate, they're just freer to have more of a stimulatory effect on the brain, okay? And so you just feel more stimulated, okay? And obviously, having that impact on adenosine, you just don't feel as tired. So I'm not taking away from it. I'm saying, like, use it the right way, okay? You get it, yeah, okay? Because you're going to have more energy, okay? Um, now I obviously understand that there's other benefits to caffeine as well. But this, this type of molecular mimicry that's actually taking place here, one thing I would say is that, it could actually have a, a negative impact longer term on your sleep-wake cycle. And what you might actually find is that you're, you, you start to feel tired later in the evening. So it sort of drags out your sleep cycle, okay? And that could affect your ability to, 
you know, restore your glycogen stores and so forth. So then you sort of like wake up in the morning, you haven't restored your glycogen stores and so forth. You just feel flat and tired. And then what, what's your answer going to be for that? Well, it's mm. probably just going to have, it's just going to be like have more caffeine basically. And once again, okay, like I'm, I'm not saying this is, this is a bad thing. Okay. So this is obviously how it's working from a yep. mimicry perspective. There is a benefit there. Okay. But just to bear in mind, that further down the line, it could really disturb your sleep-wake cycle, okay? And obviously, like, I'm not going to go into the realms of talking about, like, people who, like, slow metabolize, metabolize of caffeine and all that type of stuff, so the CYP182 genotype variant and so forth, yeah? So, which, I mean, we're not going to go into that, but basically just means some people would be more or less susceptible to having caffeine early or late in the day. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways molecular mimicry can occur. We haven't even touched on it. I, I think we'll leave it for another time, but even things like um, like hormonal disruptors, like I guess, you know, plastics could help, well, could kind of mimic sort of different hormonal cells in the body and and even well, you know, remember i said like you know infectious so this is a bacterial aspect but they're just yeah. like chemical agents as well yeah okay yeah. and so we obviously haven't used like maybe maybe it's a, a topic that we talk about again but maybe we need a full a full yeah. podcast dedicated towards it okay i think it's just like a case of like planting the seed like let, letting people like understand okay that's what it is okay yeah. and, and it, once again it doesn't necessarily mean it's all bad but I think that awareness around like the bacterial sides of things, okay, and like even like viruses, like viral infections and yeah. so forth, okay, I think is, is really important for people to understand because a lot of the time, like people with certain types of autoimmune conditions like ankylosing spondylitis, I mean, do you think they've been told that potentially like the major issue that's going on here yeah. is bacterial strains like Klebsiella pneumonia and other negative gram bacteria strains? I mean, probably not. I mean, it's yeah. highly unlikely. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we're just planting the seed and we're just saying that's probably worthy of further investigation. And especially because this stuff is now like a lot of this is, is being studied a lot more now, you know, the Klebsiella piece that you just talked about, like we've got good data on that, like really good, compelling data. And even with some of these other things, like other forms of molecular mimicry, like there's now research coming out, which is linking like the, like dozens of different forms, isn't there? Like this is, there's some pretty substantial evidence to support this, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and once again, it doesn't necessarily mean like uh, all of it is conclusive, okay? yeah. but there is more and more research that is getting produced okay, to say that there is a, uh, a huge link with autoimmune diseases and molecular mimicry. It's definitely yeah. a thing. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the only factor. I want to make that clear as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not saying that the molecular mimicry is the reason to why the person has the autoimmune condition, but is there evidence to show it's a huge contributor? Yes. Hmm. So we should move on unless there's anything else you want to say about that before we jump into our next question. No, I think let's, you know, let's uh, get into another question. Yeah. So here we're going to get a little bit, probably less technical, maybe. And a little bit more personal. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. So, we got a question from someone saying they're doing a gut protocol and they want to keep exercising, but they don't want to make their gut worse. What kind of exercise should they be doing while they're doing the gut protocol? Now, this is something which is so misunderstood. I don't really see anyone talking about this. And so I think this is something where if, if you are personally going through a gut protocol or you know someone who is or you coach clients who do, I think this is a pretty important one to listen up to because it does change the game a little bit when someone's dealing with some of these different issues, whether it's SIBO or leaky gut or you know parasites or whatever's going on, it does affect how you exercise. So how should we introduce this? Where do we want to start with this? 
Well, maybe like once again, I think the best thing to do is just give some examples. Okay. Yep. I think once again, this topic is worthy of a podcast itself and we'll definitely do yeah. this. Okay. Yep. So we are just giving you guys like a snippet really. Yep. Okay. So maybe, you know, if I just start with like one example. Okay. Yep. So let's say someone has got some like severe intestinal permeability. And obviously what I mean by this, that the damage has got deeper and deeper. Okay. And then the person has damage to things like intestinal stem cells or like progenitor cells. And when you have damage to these intestinal stem cells, you just don't have a good ability to replenish and rejuvenate the other intestinal epithelium. And so they essentially just stay damaged. And obviously the, you know, the damage has got so deep, okay, that you've got like villi atrophy, crypt hyperplasia, you know, damage to the mucosa, the submucosas, the, the damage is deep here. Okay. So we're so, talking severe leaky gut here. The, yeah. These are common things you'd even see with celiac disease, just like significant damage to the gut. Yeah. Okay. And obviously you know, you're huge link to things like IBD conditions. So that would yep. be things like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, just to give you guys just some examples. Okay. And so like when you've got this type of damage, I mean, obviously this is going to affect many mechanisms, but I'm just using this as a bit of an example around like what you need to take into consideration around yep. training. Okay. Now you definitely would have damaged the enteric nervous system. Uh, and so what I'm talking about here for people who don't know, I'm talking about the nervous system that exists between your gut and your brain. Okay. So we're talking about the communication of the gut to the brain. Now, if you've impacted the enteric nervous system, why is this really important around training? Because within the enteric nervous system, you've got all these different neurons, like motor neurons. Okay. So they control things like intestinal churning. And then you've got things like afferent neurons, efferent neurons, interneurons. Okay. Now, why are these important? Okay. Well, obviously trying to restrain myself from going further down there, okay? But they actually step in for the functions of the central nervous system when the central nervous system is cooked, basically. So why is this important around training? Okay, so if you've got this type of damage and you you would probably say that, you know, people with gut motility issues, so what I'm talking about here is like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So this also applies to, to people who have these complications as well and would probably say that severe intestinal permeability when the damage has got this severe, you are definitely more susceptible to bacterial issues like SIBO because you just don't churn food very well, okay? But if we've got this compromisation in the enteric nervous system and these neurons actually step in for the functions of the central nervous system when the central nervous system is cooked, if you go do types of training where you're putting a lot more pressure on your central nervous system, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Okay. I, I understand like to actually help with like a priming of the central nervous system to create adaptation. Okay. Like I get it, but the enteric nervous system has got to be able to step in for the functions of the central nervous system. If you are going to go and, and fry it. So maybe certain types of training that fry the central nervous system a little bit more are probably not going to be the best forms of training in that particular moment in time. And that's not like me having a go at this type of training. Does that make sense? So I would say potentially, you know, a, a lot of excessive, like, you know, time under tension, okay, especially like more accumulation. So higher reps under a lot of time under tension. So when you say higher reps, we're talking like, we're talking extended sets, supersets, triceps, giant yeah, so sets. I'm, I'm not saying that people can't still do like, you know, undulation, okay? So they, you know, still periodize between accumulation intensity, okay? But yeah. I'd say that if you're going to do a little bit more accumulation, so a little bit more volume, okay? And I, and I get it, okay? Like obviously having a, look, a lot more volume is really good for the tendons and the ligaments. Okay. It's good for vasodilation and blood flow. So I, I understand all these, all, all these benefits, but I would say 
just to do with this, that maybe you're going to be better uh, to go more like functional hypertrophy in the accumulation phase. So maybe like six, seven, eight reps. Okay. So yeah. it's sort of more top end, like eight reps. There's a few words there people may not know. So we're talking strength qualities. And when Dave says functional hypertrophy, we're talking usually six to eight or five to seven, bit of debate, but repetitions in, in the lower rep range that are going to contribute to both strength development, but also have enough rep and, and time and attention there to contribute to hypertrophy as well. So functional hypertrophy we're saying five six seven eight repetitions yeah so that might be more your accumulation okay once again it's like i would probably go more on three week blocks and i'm sure you might be similar okay but once again do you train if it's females do you train the female around their cycle and i do that with some females not all females okay it's obviously really important that they have a regular cycle that's the most important thing okay that's not really going to work that well if they no. don't so once again okay like you're going between accumulation and intensity. And obviously if we're talking about intensity, we're talking about lower rep range. So more relative strength. Yeah. Okay. So that could be like the three, four, five rep range. Okay. I don't know. Not a lot of people are going to be doing sort of like the ones and the twos. Yeah. Okay. So, so still doing like, you know, undulation. Which just, is just quickly undulating. Basically what you're referring to there is just alternating between slightly higher repetitions and slightly lower repetitions and just yeah. alternating phase by phase. Yeah. So that central nervous system fatigue you're talking about, so you're saying that actually occurs significantly more when we're doing really high volume work because people have probably heard other people suggest it happens when you're lifting heavy. Yeah, well, look, I, I'd just say like, especially if you're doing a lot more time under tension, okay, yeah. where there's, you know, four second eccentrics, yeah, okay. And this is just, this, it's, I'm not saying this is bad once again, yeah, okay. Yeah. But especially if you're doing like, uh, more volume, there's more reps. It's yep. going to put a lot more pressure on the central nervous system in this instance. Yeah, okay. Yep. But you could say like other forms of training potentially as well. Like if you're doing things like Olympic weightlifting, which definitely like I'm not taking away from the benefits. Don't shoot the messenger. Okay. But I'm saying that you're probably going to really fry your central nervous system yep. in this instance. And so that's probably in that moment in time, probably not going to be the best form of training. Okay. So, you know, maybe, you know, doing forms of like periodization where you're doing linear progressive overload. Okay. It's probably not going to be the best thing to do either because you're just like really cooking out the central nervous system in this instance. Um, so that's one consideration is not taxing the central nervous system. Now, what about, because it's more than just that one consideration and some of these will actually overlap. So you said the really high volume, high time under tension, really low, low sort of like slow tempos. You're saying that's taxing the nervous central nervous system, but that stuff is also causing a stack of damage as well, isn't it? Muscle damage. And yeah. so is that something which is negative for someone in this instance as well? And if it is, why? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that it's, it doesn't have some impact on the central nervous system because it yeah. is going to have some impact on the central nervous system. But the one thing I'll say is that you, you generally got longer rest periods. So there's more rejuvenation and, and uh, ability to uh, recover. Yeah, okay. you're, you're talking this with low repetitions if you're doing more functional hypertrophy and stuff again, yeah? Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And also the, the other thing that I would say is there's different types of training that we could use to elicit very, very similar responses that might not have the same impact on the central nervous system. And, and you, you probably know the example that I'm going to use here, but a lot of the time when I do have people with like severe intestinal permeability and, and, and gut motility issues, I'm probably going to lean a little bit more towards something like strongman training. I know 
not everyone has access to strongman equipment. Okay, I, I understand that. But what's the benefit here is that it's a good way of getting more volume into the body. Okay, so you can still get more volume. It, it can be another way of getting like, you know, time under tension as well. But the, the real benefit here is that, and they actually have found this in, in research and studies that, so I'm not saying it's better than sagittal plane work and bar work. So I'm not saying it's better, but they did find in studies that actually strongman training elicit the same amount of like uh, testosterone response and also growth hormone response. So it's really good for anabolic hormones. Okay. So once again, not saying it's better. Okay. I'm just saying in this instance where you want to ease a bit of pressure of the central nervous system, because when you, when you're doing like strongman training, whether that be things like, you know, backward drags, frontward drags, things like farmers carry tire flips, whatever that might be, you know, sled car pulls is that you just don't have a lot of like deceleration forces and acceleration forces, which is obviously you're going to have a lot of that when you're doing more, uh, more, you know, sagittal plane, like bar work. And so also you're not having a lot of that eccentric loading in those movement patterns as well. And if you're not, once again, if you don't have a lot of deceleration, acceleration forces, you don't have a lot of eccentric loading. You're just not putting as much pressure on the central nervous system in that instance. Okay. But the good thing is we can still like get more volume and you can still get that time under tension. It's a different way of getting that time under tension. And the good thing is also that you can still elicit the same amount of like anabolic response in terms of you can still elicit very, very similar response when it comes to testosterone and growth hormone. So I would probably have the tendency, not the whole way through the workout, because I would still in the A series, okay, still use some, you know, strength. And once again, like if it's more accumulation, like more volume, I'd probably go more functional hypertrophy, six to eight, okay. And if it's more intensity, like more tonnage, yeah, okay, then I'm going to use more of that relative strength, okay, and still use the undulation. So still, using accumulation and intensity, okay? But maybe more in things like the B series, where generally in the B series, that's really where you want to generally train to failure. So if I really want to train to failure, why would I want to do, if someone's got issues with the enteric nervous system, why would I want to do, you know, more more volume in that instance and a lot of uh, eccentric movement patterns, a lot of deceleration, acceleration, okay? So I could actually use more strongman movements in that instance, still get good volume into the body and still elicit a, a lot of the same anabolic responses as well. And so one of the other benefits of doing it that way, and I sort of touched on this before, alluded to this with the, the not having the slow eccentrics, is there's going to be less muscle damage accumulated by doing strongman work. And people who don't know strongman work is generally like eccentric less exercise right so it's a it's a carry where you're doing the lift but you're not having to control it under like with gravity uh and so if there's less muscle damage you would make the like you would assume that if someone's got immune dysfunction they've got permeability they've got these deficiencies associated with permeability of bacterial overgrowth their ability to repair tissue is going to be impaired isn't it and so if we're chasing muscle damage and in the main drivers of muscle damage you know generally very slow tempos very slow time you know eccentrics or or very excessive volume giant sets and triceps and things like that if their methods we're utilizing we shouldn't be expecting a client in this situation to recover anywhere near as quickly as someone who doesn't have these issues going on and so if we're looking at if we're wanting to achieve positive body composition results and build muscle and it's taking this person 
far longer to return to, to baseline in terms of breaking down muscle and essentially repairing that damage that's occurred. It might take them a day longer than someone who's healthy. And now they're back in the gym before they've actually repaired that damage. They're actually in a net negative. Like they're actually going backwards from that training as opposed to someone who's healthy and is, is building new muscle tissue. So those would be not bad methods, but they would be bad methods in this instance with someone who can't effectively doesn't have the immune function to repair that damage as efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. And we've also got to take into consideration, like if I just use another example, once again, I think the best thing to do is just use some examples here. Okay. But you know, if someone, because once again, you can have the severe damage in the gut lining and then a lot of time you've got obviously bacterial issues that accompany that, okay? Yeah. Um, so let's say you've got like negative gram bacteria overgrowth. So we obviously do talk about this frequently. So like high LPS exposure, so lipopolysaccharides, the fatty acid molecules and long chain carbohydrate molecules. So the whole thing with like LPS exposure is that you are raising like pro-inflammatory proteins. So you do raise things like TNF alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-1, interleukin-32, which actually raises other pro-inflammatory proteins. Okay. So think about it. Okay. Like when you train, I'm, once again, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but you are, you are raising like pro-inflammatory proteins. Okay. So mm -hmm. when you train that you do increase things like interleukin-6. Now, what you need to take into consideration is if you're going to increase more interleukin-6 and you've got some like negative gram bacteria overgrowth, there's just an exacerbation of these pro-inflammatory proteins, okay? Mm -hmm. And then higher amounts of these pro-inflammatory proteins, okay, then you can have like more inflammation in areas where you've got high articular cartilage, like your fingers, they could be more puffy, like more achy through the wrist, you know, once again, issues in the cervical spine and and issues in the vertebrae and the intervertebral disc. Okay? Um, and also, and I know we have like spoken about this before, okay, but uh, if you look at like LPS and negative gram bacteria, that's actually been linked to things like osteophytes. And if people don't know, don't know what osteophytes are, we're talking about bone spurs. Okay, it's really interesting around this because I've actually dealt with people who have pretty bad negative gram bacteria overgrowth and they had not all these people i want to make it clear but some of these people have had issues around like bone spurs okay and a lot of the time they get these issues within complex joints and one of the most complex joints in the human body the knees okay so the example that i would use here once again this is what i would do and i'm sure you might do uh, similar things jay okay but i would say that someone who's got like something like negative gram bacteria overgrowth and lps okay you might want to look at like movement patterns that actually help with maybe a fuller range of movement. So it might be more things like knees over toes guy, like Ben Patrick stuff. And I'm not, I'm not saying that necessarily applies to everyone. Okay. But I'm just saying this instance, things where you're actually going to help with like calcification, scar yeah. tissue adhesions, yeah. like you're just promoting more like synovial fluid and hyaluronic acid. You're just getting like more lubrication of the joints. I would say like people with like negative gram bacteria overgrowth, LPS are probably just going to notice a lot more improvements in their range of movement and and it just actually helped to ease a lot of the discomfort that they're getting in these complex joints yeah, okay and so that might also include once again a little bit more sled work so that could be things like you know backward drags frontward drags okay just to actually help with yes it helps with things like the vmo like you're activating it through the first like 10 degrees okay like with things like backward drags okay but also just actually helping um with like more blood flow and, and, and lubrication of the actual knee joint. Now, what about HIT? Is HIT good or bad in this instance? So I think the, the example here, I'm, I'm, I think we probably have talked about this one a fair bit. Uh, and I'm, 
once again, okay, like I'm not anti-conditioning work, mm. okay, but I think you really need to weigh up what the individual is actually dealing with because used the wrong way, you could really exacerbate the complications for the individual. And obviously the example here is like a SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Uh, for people who don't know, okay, so one of the byproducts from bacteria is lactic acid. Now, lactic acid is not the devil. So lactic acid is fuel for the intestinal cells, but you've got all these different forms of lactic acid, okay? And obviously, you know, the lactic acid that most people would know of is L-lactate and L-lactate is a byproduct from muscle tissue breakdown. But when you've got something like SIBO, which is a bit of a mishmash of many different types of bacteria, and we talk about it all the time, so it can be the bacteria that you normally find in your mouth, okay? It could be bacteria that you normally find in your colon, your large intestine, okay? It's just such a mishmash of like commensal bacteria, positive gram bacteria that can be non-pathogenic, pathogenic, negative gram bacteria, pathogenic, non-pathogenic. So it's just such a mishmash, you know, things like the estrobolum, like firmicutes, bacteroidetes, okay? It's just such a mishmash, okay? And so the thing here is like some bacteria can actually produce uh, more L-lactate. And then some bacteria strains produce more D-lactate. That's the one that actually gets talked about more frequently. And you can get things like D-lactate acidosis. And that would lead to things like ataxia, like coordination issues, spatial awareness problems, neurotoxicity, slurred speech. So you, you've got the D-lactate and then you need D-lactate dehydrogenase to actually help you to clear the excess amounts of D-lactate out, okay? And then L-lactate, you need L-lactate dehydrogenase, which is an enzyme to actually help you to clear the excess amounts of L-lactate out of the system. But the thing with something like SIBO, because it's such a mishmash, you, you don't really fully know what's going on from the, the different forms of lactate. So you can have excess amounts of D-lactate. There could be bacteria where there's higher amounts of L-lactate. And then some of that bacteria produces more L-lactate and D-lactate. So what people need to understand is you just have too much lactic acid and then you've got to be able to have the capacity to clear that excess amounts of lactic acid out of the system and so the the issues here okay so if you look at it like l-lactate what i'm talking about here is like l-lactate from muscle tissue breakdown okay so you look at it from a molecular perspective okay you basically got two pyruvate molecules so what i'm talking about here is like glucose okay and one hydrogen ion molecule and so if you do like high rep like bicep curls it's accumulation so yes you're accumulating more lactic acid but it's the accumulation of the hydrogen ions that actually make your bicep more fatigued. And so the way to look at it, if I've got, because obviously, you know, SIBO is a, is a problem of gas exchange. You get all these different gases, you've got hydrogen ions, hydrogen sulfide, methane, okay? So if you've got more hydrogen ions and you're really struggling to clear the excess amounts of the hydrogen ions out of the system and hydrogen ions, okay, make you feel fatigued, how do you feel? You just feel fatigued, yeah, okay? And so if you go do certain types of training where you're producing more, lactic acid, so more lactate threshold, uh, certain types of energy system work. So like lactate power, lactate capacity, aerobic power, because there's still going to be a bit more lactate. Uh, I'm not having a go at these, these different energy systems, but if you are doing more of this conditioning work, then you just can't clear the excess amounts of lactic acid out of the system. And so basically the next day, you're going to feel like you've been hit by a Mack truck. Basically, okay, so these people are going to wake up, they're just completely exhausted because they can't clear the excess amounts of lactic acid out of the system. That's why they feel so tired. Okay, and the other thing is that they, they get really excessive DOMS, so delayed onset muscle soreness. So I'm not talking about DOMS that might last like a day. Okay, I'm talking about like DOMS that they have for, you know, two or three days. And the, the issue there is most of the time people wear that like a badge of honor. 
But that's not a good sign. Like, why can't you clear the excess amounts of lactic acid out of the system? And the reason you probably can't clear the excess amounts of lactic acid out of the system, okay, is because you've probably got some bacterial issues and you've probably got something like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So what I would say in that instance, when it comes to the type of training that this person is going to respond better to, if it's going to be energy system work, okay, they're probably going to respond a lot better to something like creatine phosphate, okay? So that would be more things like, uh, lactic power, lactic capacity. Okay. So maybe something like when we're talking about work to rest ratio. So something like in terms of the amount of effort and then how that, the amount of rest that you require to rejuvenate that energy system. So if it's something like a lactic power, like more like a one to seven, one to six. Okay. So it's like 10 seconds of effort. Okay. Yeah. Then you got 70 second rest. Okay? Yeah. So um, that would be, we're talking things like someone might be on a, on a, on a, bike or on a rower or on a you know they're doing some kind of um might even be some strongman movements yeah like slamble work yeah so you're saying that the really short work intervals would be better in this instance as opposed to something like 30 seconds or 60 seconds on 60 seconds off that kind of type of work yeah yeah but i'd also say like if you if the if the person is going to do a little bit more a lactic power, lactic capacity. Okay. They've also, they've got to be strong. Okay. Yep. You can't do that type of energy system work if you just don't have the strength. Okay. Yep. So the number one thing is that you, you've got to build up your strength first. Okay. You can't just go do like creatine phosphate work if you just don't have the strength there. But yes, these people would respond a little bit better to this type of energy system work and also like just more oxidation, like the long term system. Yep. Because this helps with things like PGC number one, that's a protein that actually helps with like mitochondrial density. Okay. So if we're talking about like energy system work, I mean, that's just pretty much just aerobic capacity. So maybe keeping your heart rate between about 130, 140 beats and not don't push into the lactate. That's the most important thing here. Yes. You know, because obviously if we're getting more oxidation, we're getting more oxygen, that's actually going to help with our capacity to clear the excess amounts of lactic acid out of the system. Once again, I'm not having a go at glycolytic high rep work, you know, lactate power, lactate capacity, aerobic power. Okay. Because obviously if you're producing more lactic acid, I get it. That actually helps with the secretion of growth hormone from the anterior pituitary gland. So there's a benefit there when it comes to muscle growth and repair, but you just got to take into consideration like someone with SIBO and you're doing this type of energy system work, or maybe you're just like, because would you agree sometimes like people can go pretty overboard with like glycolytic training, like, you know, high rep work? Okay? Well, that's the thing is people should know that not only is it that kind of energy system work, but even doing, if they're doing very high volume work or they're doing, you know, again, giant sets or triceps with the same muscle group, then that's going to cause a huge amount of lactic acid locally, but it's still going to be an increase in lactic acid as well. Yeah, so... And once again, yeah, okay, I would just say someone with SIBO, okay, is just going to benefit a little bit more from creatine phosphate, oxidation, long-term system, more aerobic, okay? And also, it, look, if you do want to do that type of training, if you do want to do a little bit more glycolytic, if you do want to do those energy systems that I'm talking about, okay, just make sure you do more active recovery. The way I would program it, I, I would steer the person clear of those, okay, because it don't really respond that well. Yeah. But if you were going to do it, like after you do that type of training, you're probably going to need to do at least about 20, 30 minutes of active recovery to clear the excess amounts of lactic acid out of the system. And so that would just be like, say you're doing sprints for your 10 second intervals. It would now be 20 or 30 minutes of light jogging or walking. Very light. Like you might only just be from from an effort perspective about like 20%. Okay. Also, you could probably use 
you know, sometimes I like to use things like posterior sled walks, okay, where you're really strengthening up the posterior chain. So you can do that type of active recovery as well. I mean, once again, you're not going to sort of be dragging like 80 kilos behind you. Um, so it'd be best to do a similar movement pattern than what you were doing for the workload as far as clearing out the lactate. Hey, yeah, yes. And also, you could use potentially other mechanisms to actually help you to clear the excess amounts of lactic acid out. So you could use things like far infrared saunas. So that's something else that you could use. So just doing, you know, probably on a lower heat, about 55 to 60 degrees, okay, like 20 to 30 minutes. So you could do that straight after doing that type of training as well. But the most important thing is that you just do some form of active recovery to clear the excess amounts of lactic acid. Otherwise, you know, all the things that I talked about, like in terms of like the next day, you're just feeling like yeah. exhausted, okay, uh, really bad DOMS that's going to be a reality. Okay. And they're just, the person just doesn't have the capacity to rejuvenate, replenish, recover. So you, you're essentially, you're just applying a certain type of stress that is just exacerbating the issues and just making it worse for them. So I think we've just scratched the surface. I think there's a lot more for us to go into in another, another episode, but I guess to summarize what we said there loosely is that you don't want to do stuff which is going to tax the central nervous system. So you don't want to go excessive with volume right we don't want to do and part of that not only is that volume within the set but even volume across the week because your recovery is going to be a little bit diminished so it means not doing insane amounts of rep and set work having longer rest periods between sets and having potentially less frequency not hitting you know the same muscle group four times a week maybe only you know i'd normally limit it to sort of four sessions per week in total um, as far as weightlifting sessions, maybe you do an extra conditioning session on top of that, but that would be my max. So we want to make sure you get enough recovery time in the session and outside the session. Stick to more of the functional hypertrophy realm. So probably in the even, you know, even if you want to go slightly lower, but maybe four to eight repetitions is where the bulk of your work should be done. Um, if you want to add in some strongman work and eccentric less work, that would be a good idea a bit of low intensity, steady state's good. And if you want to, maybe one time a week doing a little bit more shorter periods of hit work, but again, keeping that relatively short in duration. So say 10 second, 15 second work intervals. If you're at that point, this would be more intermediate advanced, certainly not for beginners. Correct. That cover most of it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're definitely going to cover this again. Okay. Because you know, there's so many things. There's so I know even going through like my head and yeast and yeah. Um, so you know, we are scraping the surface. Okay, uh, we we're just really trying to answer, are, yeah. answer the question as best we can. But hopefully, that is just giving people a little bit of a snippet. Okay, yeah, into some of the things that you just got to take into consideration. Yeah, yeah. There's so many things. So I'm like, oh, but we didn't mention that. We didn't say that. And what about that? So I'm we'll restraining myself. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Um, let's let's do one more quick one. Hey, so we'll, yeah. we'll try to keep this one condensed. Someone's asked, why am I this getting- This one could be a rabbit hole as well, I think. It, it could be, but let's, let's, let's restrain ourselves a bit. Yeah. So someone's asked, why am I getting sugar cravings? Why am I getting sugar cravings? So there's obviously, there's a lot of possible answers here. Let's just cover a couple of maybe the more obvious ones or the, the more prevalent ones we see with clients. You know, why I'll, would someone be getting sugar cravings? Yeah, I'll just give like, once again, I'm just going to give examples is the best way to do it, I think. Yep. Okay, so if I just give you one example, it relates to some things that we've talked about in this podcast. It's just like when you've got damage to the gut lining. So when you've got damage to the gut lining, you've got enteric endocrine cells. So if for people who don't know what they are, they're a type of epithelium and they produce enteric hormones. So what am I talking about here is gut hormones. Now go away and do a bit of, bit of research around gut hormones, okay? Because they're really important to regulate blood glucose levels. 
So they even control like things like the release of insulin. Okay. Cause what we're talking about here is like transit time of food. So if I use one example, because obviously when you've got this type of damage in the gut lining, you, you pretty much damage all the epithelium. Okay. And that's going to include enteric endocrine cells. And then that is really going to compromise enteric hormones. So one of these enteric hormones is glucagon-like peptide one. Okay. I don't think we've ever mentioned this really in podcasts, but I know like you and I have talked about it and glucagon-like peptide one, you actually produce within the small intestine. It's also within the large intestine as well. One of the roles of glucagon-like peptide one is to control the release of the food coming from the stomach to the small intestine. Now that's transit time of food. So that is obviously regulating like blood glucose levels. Also aspects around like motility as well. So like intestinal journey. But if I you know, damage the enteric endocrine cells, could I potentially compromise glucagon-like peptide one as well? Well, you could compromise it, okay? So I'm not saying that you're not producing it at all, but you can compromise it. Uh, and so that means basically you are affecting like transit time of food. And so that basically can be more rapid. And if it's more rapid, what do you think is going to happen when it comes to like your blood glucose levels? Okay, so your blood glucose levels are actually going to raise a lot more rapidly. And if they raise a lot more rapidly, okay, also what's going to happen is they're going to drop rapidly as well, which means you're going to be more in the realms of like hypoglycemic. And when you're a little bit more hypoglycemic, so a lot of people who've got issues around glucagon like peptide one, they generally more frequent snacking. Okay, they just want to snack all the time because they're just like, obviously because their blood glucose levels are dropping so rapidly, just don't feel good. And they're just going to reach out for the lowest common denominator. They're just going to go for something that's just going to raise that more rapidly. Okay, and that So basically to- what you're saying is there's two ways our body can regulate glucose. And if our body's not doing it well itself with various hormones needed to regulate it, then we're going to take into our own hands and we're going to consume sugar or carbs in order to actually boost it up once we're going hyperglycemic then we drop again then we want to eat it again just to boost it up so that's that's in response to our body not doing it well naturally yep yeah and so i'm just using that as one example of like obviously when you do get this type of damage to the gut lining okay because obviously you're affecting other enteric hormones as well so you're you're, you're impacting other gut hormones and so now you're actually in, impacting gut hormones that play a role in hunger like ghrelin okay now also you affect you know satiety gut hormones as well and so this is going to have a negative impact on your blood glucose levels as well so i'm just using this as a bit of an example so in that instance would you be expecting to see insulin levels higher would we see an elevation in fasting insulin on blood work or we wouldn't necessarily it's a good question not necessarily Mm. okay probably not something like i've looked at a lot of data around okay yeah. it definitely got me thinking and probably i should look at some data around it but not you know off the top of my head not necessarily my gut feeling would be no as well and that would make it interesting because this doesn't this could happen in someone who's not overweight couldn't it and yep. we haven't even mentioned it, but there's other mechanisms that the gut could be affecting this as well you know we've talked about lps today obviously that could be well that can significantly impact insulin sensitivity or you know blood sugar management as well so there could be these issues going on from a gut perspective which would lead someone to have unstable blood sugar which wouldn't even necessarily show up necessarily show up as high insulin and this person does not fit kind of their classic image as someone who's going to have blood sugar issues someone who you know maybe somebody pcos or type 2 diabetes like that would make a little bit more sense but here we're looking at someone who maybe um you know is not overweight who maybe doesn't have any of these other conditions and yet they still have this really poorly managed blood sugar yeah 
And like, it's like, and I know we've mentioned this before and, and you just mentioned it, but you know, you can get LPS induced insulin resistance. Okay. So that's blood sugar management dysregulation mm. actually caused by the negative gram bacteria. Um, and they've actually shown that LPS can have negative impacts around, you know, things like obesity and type two diabetes and, and insulin resistance. Um, so there is data and there is research around that. Is there decent data with acomancia and blood sugar regulation? Look, I, I, decent research, couldn't say conclusively. Yeah, okay? But look, I know they do talk about acomancia mucinifila, okay, for people who uh, don't know what we're talking about here. So we're talking about a particular bacteria, okay, and that has been shown to have benefits around like insulin resistance and blood sugar management regulation. Am I saying that's conclusive? No, but they have shown in some data for it to have uh, some benefits around that. Mm. So that's one one reason someone might be craving sugar. What about, do we want to talk about a dopamine piece or, or yeast? Yeah, well, look, obviously just like just around the bacteria itself. Okay, Like you could even say with something like negative gram bacteria and LPS, because obviously the negative gram bacteria, I mean, because bacteria is such a dominant force in your body, okay, it is going to dictate things like your food choices. Mm. Um, and if you've got like an overgrowth of like pathogenic strains of negative gram bacteria, okay, you can actually crave more things like fruit oligosaccharides or fructans. And so that includes things like, you know, bananas and also things like sugar and brown sugar, wheat and barley. So I'm just using that as a bit of an example where you could actually have a little bit of a higher craving for these things. Uh, and obviously with certain types of negative gram bacteria, uh, more so like the Klebsiella strains, Klebsiella pneumonia, Klebsiella oxytoca is like more of a, maybe a bit more of a craving around like certain types of like higher starches. Uh, and then also there's, you know, things like candida and yeast. And I think we've talked about this before. One of the issues that I have around like, you know, certain simple sugars like galactose and glucose is that they actually allow the candida and yeast to basically bind to the mucosal cell, the epithelium. And that just makes it even harder to get rid of like the overgrowth. But obviously, you know, if you've got candida and yeast overgrowth, and once again, we're not saying that candida and yeast is the devil, okay? It is part of normal ecology and actually helps with like nutrient absorption and nutrient assimilation. But it, it's going to basically you know, demand its food source, yeah, okay? And so you're probably going to have a higher craving in that instance for, you know, simple sugars, more refined carbohydrates. So, you you know, uh, you're going to have a higher craving for these types of foods, okay? That's so these things are literally feeding the yeast. So the yeast is, is essentially modulating your behavior and your food preferences because it's wanting to be fed. Yeah, okay? Because it's just like, it's, it's a ratio issue. Because you've got such a high ratio of the yeast and the candida, okay, it's really going to dictate your 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 cravings, yeah, okay, and your food choices, okay. You could actually say like parasitic infection, like protozoal yeah. parasites, like simple sugars. I wouldn't say that all like all carbohydrates tend to be a big problem for parasitic infection, not from my experience, but definitely you know simple sugars. So that could be some issues around even things like maple syrup and rice malt syrup and honey, okay. It doesn't like doesn't mean honey's bad okay so honey's got benefits around you know beneficial enzymes and also it's got antibacterial benefits as well okay so we're not i'm not saying it's bad but obviously if you've got the parasitic infection you've got things like yeast and candida and then there is going to be a higher demand or, or cravings around these certain types of foods and also if you are going through some sort of like antimicrobial treatment some antiparasitic treatment okay what you're probably going to find is when you're breaking down things like the chitinium membrane or the yeast cell wall, 
that actually a lot of these food cravings, uh, these sugar cravings can be like really amplified. So why does that occur? Because that is super common. Someone's going through a yeast protocol and suddenly they're craving sugar like there's no tomorrow. So what's going on that's making it so much worse in that instance? Yeah, look, it just would like, because once again, when we're talking about things like yeast and candida and, and, and bacteria, I mean, their primary concern is survival. Yeah. Um, and so they're really going to want their food source to actually help with like, you know, cellular replication and yeah. proliferation, basically. So that's why you might notice that there's that those sugar cravings just like more amplified than yeah. even when you just had just the candida and the yeast uh, overgrowth and complications, just even more amplified yeah. during that period of time. And that's when it's probably even more important for someone to be adhering to a diet in that context, because would you say that if someone does sort of start consuming more sugars while they're doing the antimicrobials, at the very least, it's probably going to exacerbate the die-off symptoms for longer. And if we're unlucky, it may actually slow the progress of the antimicrobials. Yeah, that's what I'd say. Like, I mean, obviously there's different ideologies and there's, there's different thought processes around this, and I'm not discrediting any of them. But I would say that, you know, you might, you, you definitely have to be mindful, okay? Because if they if you are, maybe just, you know, going a little bit too crazy around the simple sugars and all that type of stuff, it might be just harder to get rid of the the, the yeast and the candida overgrowth as yeah. a bit of an example, okay? So you maybe just make it, as you said, it's just harder yards. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense if you if you had a pest in the house you're trying to get rid of, you had mice or something. Do you think leaving out food for the mice overnight is going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Like clearly it's going to make your job harder. Exactly. And maybe just one last thing. I mean, cause I, I think there's, there's a lot in this topic as well, but I would say just like what is going to lead to a lot of sugar cravings is your just malnourishment under eating. Okay. Yeah. You know, if you're not really meeting your nutrient demands, then that's definitely going to lead to most likely higher sugar cravings as well. Okay. I mean, I, there's probably a lot to unpack in that one as well. Yeah, okay. even the cortisol aspect. Yeah. Okay. You know, if someone's going to gluconeogenesis on a frequent basis, once again, I'm not gluconeogenesis is completely normal. Okay. It's a normal metabolic pathway, but that might actually create some issues around, you know, higher sugar cravings. And, you know, I would say sometimes if people aren't using like fasting the right way, this could create some issues where, you know, maybe your blood glucose levels are dropping a little bit more. Uh, a little bit more frequently, okay? And then once again, just from my experience, you're just going to go for the lowest common denominator in that instance, okay? Which is going to feel like it makes it better in that time and moment, but it's actually going to be exacerbating it because it's it ultimately, if you're reaching for sugar, yes, you'll feel better for the next 20 minutes, but then you're going to go hyperglycemic again and it's just going to become a cycle. Yeah, and I'd say like there's also, you know, we haven't probably tapped into some hormonal imbalances here that could actually create like sugar cravings and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a, there's a decent amount a to things. unpack with this one as well. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, hopefully that is helpful going to a few more questions. I think we'll do these on a semi-regular basis. So um, thank you guys who submitted a question and thank you, Dave. Look forward to our next one. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, guys. Yeah, bring in the Q&As. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.